Okay, today we are in 2 Corinthians, that's 2 Corinthians chapter um, 1, 2 Corinthians 1, and we're in a section where Paul talks about suffering and affliction and how he found comfort in the midst of suffering. And so we saw two key themes that we've been discussing, comfort and affliction. And so we're on verse 7. Well, let's start with verse 6. This is the beginning of a sentence. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. I wanted to bring up one other one thing that we I brought up last week because people were asking me about this verse I was talking about, and it was kind of an interesting, uh, uh, how would you say, <laughs> excuse me, circumstance. I had been out of town, so I hadn't been able to get my email. So when I came into town last week Saturday, I downloaded like several hundred emails, and I couldn't get to them till Monday. Spent all day Monday on it. But in Sunday, in Sunday school, I brought up Colossians 1.24 about making up what was lacking in the sufferings of Christ and gave an interpretation of it, you know, bringing, bringing something to uh, people that they wouldn't have uh, heard otherwise by comparing it to passage in Philippians, which I never found. Well, the interesting thing was, Monday when I got to my emails, there was an email from Linda Lewis, who usually sits right here, and asking about Colossians 1.24. And it said, well, we were studying that in the Bible study, and I couldn't understand it. What's, what's this deal with Colossians 1.24? And here I had answered it on Sunday, but I hadn't got the email. So I thought that was an interesting coincidence. She thought I'd gotten the email, and that's why I brought it up. No, I just brought it up for who knows why. But I found the passage in Philippians, and I want to see if I can't find it again. He talks about uh, making up what was lacking in their gift, and it's the same word in the Greek as the passage in Colossians. So several people said, where's that, where's that verse you were talking about? Is that it? Read it in the mic. Philippians 2.17 But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. No, that's not it. Is that it? I think it's, uh, here it is, 2.30. Philippians 2 and verse 30. 2 verse 30. Because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. Yeah, to complete what was deficient. That is the same in the Greek as the phrase in Colossians 1.24. So what was lacking in Christ's sufferings wasn't that Christ didn't suffer enough for our sins, but what was lacking was the message of the gospel that's based on Christ's sufferings had to be brought to people who hadn't heard it. So, the, in, 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 analogously, the, what was deficient in their service to Paul was they had gotten a gift together, but Paul was in prison, and Epaphroditus, I believe that's what he's talking about here, let me get my facts straight. Yeah, Epaphroditus risked his life 
to bring the gift on a perilous journey to Paul in prison. So what was lacking was it getting to him. So what was lacking in Christ's sufferings wasn't their efficacy, but for them, for the message of that uh, atoning sacrifice to be brought to people who had never heard it. And so that's what Paul was doing, was bringing the message, not adding to the merits of Christ as some have interpreted in church history, which is certainly a false doctrine. So that's just a little... Um, I wanted to bring that back up because I mentioned it and several people said, what's that verse in Philippians? And now, for the people that listen on the Internet, they'll know too. It's Philippians 2 and verse 30. So, um, the reason I brought that up was this idea that if we're afflicted, it's for your salvation. Well, as I was pointing out, Paul being afflicted isn't going to save somebody. Okay. And uh, it, it was it was Paul's affliction in the course of bringing the gospel to people who hadn't heard it. It's the gospel that brings salvation. But because he was willing to bring the gospel, he put himself under persecution and affliction and, and all kinds of torments, as you can read through the book of Acts. And there's uh, things that he talks about here that are already included in Acts. Acts is not an exhaustive account of everything that happened in Paul and Peter's and James' life. It was a giving selected episodes so we understand what's important. But, you know, life is uh, complex, and Paul had a lot of experiences. Now, the the one we're going to read about here, we can't necessarily identify somewhere in Acts. It may be something that wasn't written in Acts. And some of the things that he talks about, how many times he's beaten and shipwrecked and this and that, in his uh, uh, later in 2 Corinthians would be, including experiences beyond what you could read about in Acts. So now we go to verse 7. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharers of our comfort. So what they share with Paul is a relationship with Jesus Christ. And according to the teachings of the New Testament, in some regard, everyone who embraces the gospel is embracing some degree of suffering. All right? And we can talk about that. I'm going to cross-reference that into Romans. And it doesn't mean that we purposely, uh, you know, again, a lot of this has been abused in church history, especially in the monastic period where people thought, well, I could be a higher order Christian if I suffered more, so I'll purposely, you know, take an oath of poverty or I'll do some extreme thing or have somebody whip me uh, to try to get myself holy. And again, that is, that's not only does it work, it's flat out wrong because we're warned about it in Colossians chapter 2. That severe treatment of the body is not going to make anybody holy. But what sufferings we are talking about is the ones that come as the result of embracing the gospel and seeking to live a life obedient to Christ. And as we do so, we are putting ourselves at odds with the hostile world around us. And we're putting uh, ourselves at odds with what everybody believes. And it seems to be more so all the time, especially here in America, because the reigning paradigm is pluralism relativism, and tolerance, okay? And so just our ideas. Not, we can be tolerant. Who did I hear talking about this? 
Oh, I was reading it. It was D.A. Carson's book about the emerging church. He was talking about tolerance. And he says, the emerging church, says Carson, really uh, uh, redefines what Christian tolerance is. He says, says Carson, tolerance would be, as he understands it, you can vehemently disagree with somebody's ideas, but you, you tolerate their existence. You allow them to, to have their ideas and take them to the grave if they want to, but you're going to withstand the ideas because they're wrong. Okay? But intolerance historically was forcing everybody to agree with you because you had a state church or a state religion, and at the edge of the sword, you either convert to my way or I kill you. So when tolerance became... Uh, in fact, our church history class, Dr. Travis, was talking about this, that after all these years of religious wars, the first step was the decision in some countries to tolerate people having religions that weren't the state religion. And then the next step that was uh, instituted here in America was the separation of church and state, meaning, meaning that we don't have a state religion that enforces everybody else has to be a part whether they want to believe in that or not. And that idea, by the way, now that I have refreshed my church history by going to those classes that Dr. Travis had, that, that idea was first articulated strongly by a Baptist. A, a man by the name of Isaac Bacchus um, was the one about the time, just before the, our Constitution, who said we need to separate the church and the state in the sense of not having a state religion. Because already the colonies had religions, but... He could see there's no way because you had Catholic colonies and, and, and congregationalist colonies. And so even if we were going to have a state religion that was Christianity, there's no way they would have agreed on what version of it. Was it we're going to have a Catholic America or we're going to have a Baptist America or we're going to have a congregationalist America? So they determined um, uh, by William Bacchus's ideas, kind of won the day, and that's where tolerance came from. Now, back to Carson. Carson says that what the emergent church has done and a lot of others of the postmodern understanding is redefine what we mean by tolerance. So rather than disagreeing with somebody and saying so and staying in disagreement with them and suggesting that some things are right and some things are wrong and I believe your idea is wrong, but I'll tolerate your right to have the idea and you can keep having your idea if you don't want to repent. That's between you and God. That's, that's the old idea of tolerance. The new idea of tolerance is you can't tell anybody they're wrong. Everybody gets to be right. And so then we kind of just uh, get this uh, non... It's almost impossible, but you erase all the boundaries and you pretend that all paths lead to God and all the religions are saying the same thing. And, uh, and it's gone to such an extreme where you don't ever tell somebody their ideas are wrong or actually debate them. And so that's the new tolerance. And that's, that's fatal to Christianity because we have a, a gospel that's the truth that we must defend. Well, it almost seems like it's swung the other way. The new, the new tolerance is intolerance towards Christians. <laughs> yeah, right. The one thing they can't stand is somebody that has strong ideas. I was, um, I, I was up, I, I got on the internet when we were on vacation because they have, the hotel has like you plug in your laptop thing and you can get on. And so, just it's kind of a silly thing to do, but I didn't know what else to do, so I googled my own name, 
<laughs> I admit it. It's pretty stupid. I, I got to. I got to admit, that's really a dumb thing to do. But I, I found. Some, I really found some interesting things going down the list. There was an amazing number of times. But one of them I found was from an emergent church site, because I gave Doug Paget, you know, when I debated him, his uh, he he got a copy of the audios. Well, they put it on his website, and it's entitled "A Trip to the Other Side." <laughs> It's like I'm in some other reality, and if you listen to this, you'll hear this weird reality of this guy saying, there are, there are boundaries, God draws them, and we're going to be judged based on the words of the Bible. They think I'm in some, twi- I'm in twilight zone, the other side. <laughs> Kathy and then Brian. I just want to say, the, the thing that came to my mind was when you said about the Constitution and the and the con- different congregations, it reminds me of the t- of the times I heard <coughs> of the, one town or another being of one denomination, and there may have been there may have been three or four other different denominations, but this one denom- this one uh, town. This one town would have one major... Yeah, that, major. That, that was true in Iowa when I was a kid. There was a town uh, not too far from us to the south. There was a Catholic town. In fact, it wasn't just a Catholic town. It was a certain ethnicity of Catholic. And that was the entire town. One great big huge Catholic church in the middle. No other church. And everybody that was, I think it was German, that's where they lived. <clears throat> uh, Brian, you want to bring it to Brian? Well, before I was a Christian, I, I never had tolerance for Christians, but that was like the highest ideal that most of the New Agers aspire to is tolerance. Uh, G.K. Chesterton said that tolerance these days only extends to those, believe, to those people who believe in nothing. Believe in something and beware. Yeah, so they're intolerant of somebody that has a strong belief. So what Carson was pointing out, and this is I totally agree with Carson, is that this whole thing is ultimately fatal to Christianity because we have truth claims that aren't dependent on our little cultural group. They're not relative to some little hermeneutical community. They're not relative to the processes of my own mind. The truth claims of the Bible originated from outside of our culture, outside of our mind. They originated in Jesus Christ coming in the flesh speaking the true words of God and dying for sins and being raised in front of witnesses. And, and it was not an accident that in the debate, one of the passages I preached on was Acts 17, where Paul was preaching to Athenian philosophers that all men are culpable and God is commanding all to repent because he's going to judge the world by the man, a man, Jesus Christ, whom he raised from the dead, having furnished proof. So everything in that passage is totally anathema to the emergent church. They don't believe in future judgment. They don't believe in evidence. They don't believe in authoritative words that were spoken in history that mean the same thing to us that it did to the people that spoke it. None of that. They don't believe any of that. So that's why when I went into debate, I just went full tilt proclaiming everything I know they hate. Uh, do you know anything about Baha'i religion? Cause it, it was in the paper. It seems to me that the emergent church would fall right into anyone can believe whatever they want to believe. It's, it's Baha'i has been around since like the 60s, and it's the same thing. 
Ever, we just believe in being good people and love and that's it. You, know, you can believe anything you want. So, the issue then, uh, I'm talking about suffering here, that's how I got onto this topic, is that even more so all the time, to, to hold faithfully to the teachings of Jesus Christ and to proclaim those teachings and to, not be, and to be not willing to compromise those teachings is going to put you at odds with most everybody around you. You are going to be way out of step. Some people were talking about that. Brian, you were talking about that. Um, people were mad at um, Todd Friel because he played that MacArthur thing about witnessing the Catholics. Yeah, and people wrote, you can't do that. Well, yeah, you can do that. <laughs> okay, so here it says that we're sharers of, com- of sufferings and sharers of comfort. So this, these are Christ's sufferings that we share in. Having believed in Jesus Christ and confessed Him as Lord and Savior and confessed that He's the head of the church, and confessed that he's the authoritative lawgiver for the church. In other words, he spoke authoritatively for God, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, so that his teachings are binding on all Christians. That puts us at odds with people who believe in pluralism, relativism, religious quote-unquote tolerance the way they explain it today. I would not say I'm against tolerance if it just meant people can believe what they want to believe, but we're going to debate it. And if they want to be wrong, they can be wrong, but that's between them and God. But no, their idea of tolerance is you can't even have your ideas or you can't tell that somebody else's that they're wrong. So I would disagree with that. Now, uh, somebody, where, where are we with the mic? Robert? Um, why don't, um, uh, uh, you get your King James Bible? Maybe it's okay in this version here. Okay. Read your King James, um, Romans 8, 17 and 18. <laughs> It's pretty good in the New Testament, but while I'll tell you, it's, it's hard to read the King James Old Testament sometimes. Actually, it's good in the Psalms, but if you really want to struggle, read the King James of uh, 1 and 2 Samuel sometime. Romans eight seventeen and 18. <laughs> and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so, <coughs> that we be sufferers with him, that we may also glorify together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. So there again is that we're shares with Christ's sufferings. And there's sufferings that Paul says are the sufferings of this present time. And he says the, pre- the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory. Now, that's why we have to walk by faith, because we don't see the glory. We don't, we don't even know exactly what it will be like when we're glorified with Christ. But we do walk by faith and we do believe these things. And so what are the sufferings of this present time? Well, there's a number of things that you could say. I think one of the facts is that you don't realize what these sufferings are like so much until you truly are converted. Because it's, it's harder for Christians. I'll tell you why. When, you, when you're unconverted... The world of flesh and the devil are kind of all going the same direction, right? And you're right in the same stream. So the world's going down its path and you're on the same path. You're not in so much conflict. 
Okay, and you don't have to. You might feel guilty, but it's easy to get rid of it because you just decide there's other people that are worse, right? Okay, so you kind of go along in the world, and you're going the same direction as everybody else. When you're converted by God's grace through the gospel, all of a sudden there's there's conflicts because what God's telling you to do is the total opposite of where you were going, and now whether it's your old friends or whether it's just the general demeanor of the society that you're in, everything's like a conflict. And then we have internal conflicts because now we have two things going on. We have the flesh warring against the Spirit, according to Galatians 5. Before, it was nothing but the flesh. So you just give in to it. Now, as a Christian, you have to try to resist the flesh. And that's a battle. And it creates sufferings. But they're worth having because the glory will be that great. All right. And then there's the sufferings that may attend persecution for the sake of the gospel and so on. I think, Dick, when we did a radio show on Romans, we went through a list of the different kind of sufferings that would fit. Yeah, we had a big list that we went through. By the way, we're putting all these things on our website. Uh, we're working on it. And we're eventually going to have uh, our, on our TwinCityFellowship.com website Bible teaching book by book by book. We're going to have that entire series on Romans, the entire series on Genesis, the entire series on Hebrews, the entire series on Philippians, the entire series on Galatians. We're going to put the church history class on there that we just had, so along with downloadable um, uh, notes and stuff that went with it. And I want to get Ryan's hermeneutics class somehow taped and with notes and PDFs and put that on there so that if somebody... Once to, they can learn the Bible and get equipped for the ministry right on the website. So, so we're working on that. I got somebody working on it. I guess the, the Romans are already up. We just got to get them linked so people can get that. So Romans 8, 17, 18 talks about the sufferings of this present time. So why is it so important that we keep preaching the gospel, even in church, uh, when people mostly have already believed the gospel? Because the gospel is our comfort. And people who are redeemed rejoice to hear the truth of the gospel. And we need to hear it even after we're Christians over and over again. We need to know about our mutual salvation. We need to find the comfort of the, of the Word of God and the fact that our sins are forgiven. Absolutely. It's a very good thing that if you get to the point where a lot of bad things are happening in your life and you literally can stop and think, but I know my sins are forgiven. That's a very, that's a, that's a victory when you can do that. Because, um, that's what we should rejoice in. Yes, Nicole, hold on. Um, I just want to mention that, uh, I just read recently, and I know you're, you've already been through Hebrews, but I just want to read it because it's right in line with what you're saying. Um, in Hebrews chapter 3, starting at verse 4, it says, For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful. Faithful as a servant in all God's house, testifying to what could be said in the future. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house, and we are his house, if we hold on to our courage and the hope which in which we boast. And I looked up that word courage in the Greek, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here. <laughs> it's a parousia, and it means boldness, particularly in speaking. Parousia, yeah. Parousia, okay. That, that's an interesting word because... Boldness in Acts, that same word is used in Acts when 
Peter and I think Peter and John were speaking and they were contending with the religious leaders. And it says, and they were surprised at their parousia, courage or boldness, realizing they were ignorant and unlearned men. So how are you bold to contend with the scribes and Pharisees when you're a fisherman? And then they took note that they'd been with Jesus. They gained their boldness because they sat at the feet of the master teacher for three years, Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. I can. I just want to say, I can just testify to what you're saying about conflict because the Lord has just taken me through tons of stuff and I, I knew he was telling me through that that he was going to refine me in it. But in the midst of it, when I look at this word courage, it's not just this generic word courage anymore. It actually means in this particular um, verse, boldness particularly in speaking. And whenever I have stepped out in faith and spoke, you know, uh, you know, kind of shaking a little bit in my boots. The Lord just infuses the strength in me, and I find an intimacy with Him in the suffering, even as the conflict comes back. And so many Christians are searching for this intimacy with Christ, and they think it's a, it's a happy meal, feel good, emotional thing, when really it's facing up to conflict with this kind of courage, and feeling the suffering is where you're going to have the intimacy with Christ. Yes. You know, when everything is shaken in this world, um, it really begins to give us a, a, our own understanding of how strong the gospel is in our own life. And God's sovereign over, you know, what each of us goes through providentially. But I know in some really, really difficult times, the bottom line is you're going to flee to the gospel or you're going to just... Listen to Job's wife, Chris Scott, and die. <laughs> and uh, the gospel's strong. I wanted to quote from Garland about this here. He says, Paul turns it around and argues that his affliction is for their comfort and salvation. He came to them, and, and he has a note that some of the manuscripts don't have the phrase salvation, but we won't try to solve that one. He came to them in suffering, but brought them the gospel. How can they disdain what brought their new life in Christ? Paul has suffered much, but he's been comforted much and passes it on to them. Um, uh, we might ask, however, how does this suffering affect their salvation? First, his afflictions come from his proclaiming the gospel by which they are saved. If Paul had chosen to shrink from the dangers he faced and to retreat unscathed to safer places, many um, in the Gentile word would not have heard the saving word of the gospel. As Christ endured suffering to bring salvation to the world, Paul endured to bring the message of salvation to the world, which is what we're talking about in that Colossians 1.24 passage. That's what that means. He endured it to bring the, the message of salvation. So, the, the, you know, the irony, you know what the irony of, of Corinth is and this whole thing that Paul's dealing with these, this church? The irony is the things that Paul went through that brought them salvation were the things that the, the critics they were listening to were using against Paul. They were saying that his sufferings and all of the stuff that he went through and imprisonment and beatings and all this proved he wasn't really a good apostle. In other words, that if he had more, if he was more spiritual, if he had more power, if he was a greater, uh, more eloquent speaker, he wouldn't go through all this stuff. So it's a very cruel thing they're doing to Paul to uh, accuse him of being wrong or bad or lesser on the grounds of the very thing that he went through in order to bring them to gospel. Isn't that amazing? 
Okay. That does the same thing, doesn't it? Okay. I just want to comment. Um, all through my years growing up as an epileptic, I never even thought of it or gave it much thought. But when my brother Ron developed his MS and was totally paralyzed, I once asked him on a Thanksgiving day, and I said, what is it that you have? And he said, by watching you, just by my growing up without thinking anything of my epilepsy or anything, here he saw me growing up and not getting shook up over it. Well, you know, it's, you found the gospel, didn't you, Kathy? That's, you know, whatever we have, we've gone through, if we find the gospel... I, I know we have to believe this now because it is something you can, it isn't something you can see, but I'm absolutely convinced because of the scripture that when we get into eternity, all these terrible things won't seem like anything. They'll, 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 and if they contributed to us ending up with Christ in eternity, we'll be glad. That and that's the truth. It's it's, not, it's just not a platitude. It's not just a, an excuse for not having any better answer. It's an answer. I'm going to read some more from Romans 8 in a bit. Yes. I have found out that when I was in times of trouble, that um, if I'm with the Lord, that um, that's when the trouble starts. Because if if I go along with mankind, I'm fine. But if I step out and believe in the Lord and live as the Lord wants, then I've got everyone fighting me. Or Yeah, Satan, uh, like when I was first saved, uh, somebody said, well, said something to me about Satan. I was a brand new Christian, and they said something about Satan. And I said, oh my, I just came to believe in God. Do I believe in Satan too? <laughs> and well, not as an object of faith. And they said, don't worry, uh, you'll find out soon enough. <laughs> We're not going to argue with you to convince you there's a Satan. Within two days, I knew there was a Satan. <laughs> yes. I, I find it interesting that, that Paul was bringing the gospel to the Corinthian church, which is a very carnal church, and he did what he did to bring them the gospel, and he suffered for that. And in today's church, when a person is going through a trial or going through a carnal period, as the Corinthian church did, you find two groups of people within the church. One of them will bring you the gospel in words of comfort, and the other group will condemn you for not being a victorious Christian. Uh, can you comment on that for the people that are oh, going absolutely. through trials? I, I have seen it. Uh, let, me, let me tell you a, a real-life example of that. Okay, This is a few years back, but there was a fellow that I used to know from way back, used to go fishing with and stuff, and I hadn't seen him much. I ran into him once on a bus, and I was talking to him about the Lord, and he was kind of backslid at the time. And then we kind of reconnected, and he got back serving the Lord. And then there was, I don't know why, I decided to try to call him. He was living with his aunt. And I hadn't seen him for a long time, and it just came into my mind to call him to see what was going on with the guy. So I called over to his aunt's place, and she says, oh, he's in the hospital. And I said, really? What hospital? A Methodist. Okay, so I went over to see him. And he almost he had had emergency surgery. He almost died from a bowel obstruction. And, and he didn't go in right away. And that can kill you. Okay? 
And so he had had this horrendous surgery and he was laying there. And I said, uh, well, did, you should have called for prayer. I would have come and prayed for you. He said, well, I did. I called the, the church, but they wouldn't send anybody out because they said that uh, I, they don't visit people in the hospital because they don't visit defeated Christians. He was going to a Word of Faith church. And he said, and the other thing is, none of his friends would visit him either because the sermon the week before was, in order to help your faith, don't ever associate with defeated Christians. Okay, so if you're poor or sick, you lose all your Christian friends because they think if you hang, they hang around with you, your unbelief will rub off on them and ruin their party. So, here, so here's, this, now here's the irony. Here's the irony. When I, and I don't believe that doctrine at all. The pastor from the church that doesn't believe the prosperity doctrine ends up at the hospital praying for him. And, and nobody, it was a miracle that I even found out he was there. And the people that he was counting on wrote him off because he's defeated. And now, now what a cruel doctrine that is. And so uh, I told him, you know, stay away from that. But, you know, he kept, when he got better, he went right back to that church. I think, I think it's because he kept thinking maybe it'll work one of these times and he'll get the prosperity these other people have. But it doesn't work for anybody but the pastor who's taking the offering. Yes. Well, it's interesting. You, you mentioned that uh, Paul's critics were after him because he was, he was defeated. He was having all these problems. And we were just going over the third chapter of Ephesians where he takes about 10 or 12 verses to reassure the Ephesians. He starts out, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ. And he winds up telling them that they should be encouraged for all of the sufferings he has gone through. And so this is for the furtherance of the gospel. And it was a reassuring voice to the Ephesians to the fact that, well, don't look at all these things as my defeat, but see it as the furtherance of the gospel. Amen. And that's, by the way, explains why Paul rejoiced so much in the book of Philippians. That One of the themes of Philippians is joy. And Paul's in prison. He keeps talking about joy. The thing that brought Paul great joy, and this may seem odd to us because we think of Paul as obviously a heroic figure, one of the great people in the Bible, but on the scene of history when this was happening, Paul didn't know if the Philippians too would reject him because he's in jail. You don't always want the apostle that founded your church to be in jail. It doesn't look so good, right? And so he was rejoicing that they, though he was in jail, they still loved him and they'd send him a gift because it's not taken for granted that that's going to be the way that it is because it wasn't. Now, I was reading in my commentaries about this. Um, one of the interesting analogies that someone made, and I'm also preaching through Thessalonians, which I'm going to be in today, was that if you compare the Corinthian church and the church in Thessalonica, you see some interesting contrasts. If you read the story, when Paul went into Thessalonica and preached the gospel, there was severe persecution, not only against Paul, but against anybody in Thessalonica who believed the gospel. They were attacked. The believers in Thessalonica themselves came under vicious attack from both Gentile and Jewish sources. And when you read First and Second Thessalonians, it reflects the fact that that was a persecuted church. But it was also a faithful church. And the Thessalonians, if you, if you read the epistles, Paul has a lot of good things to say and commendations. He says, news of your faith 
has spread out throughout Achaia and, uh, and he commends them for what God's doing in their midst. But in Corinth, the believers themselves weren't coming under this persecution. But what they were doing in Corinth was being tempted to participate with the pagans in their idolatrous feasts. You can read about that in 1 Corinthians. And so the non-persecuted church becomes almost part of the culture and they begin to compromise with the culture. And the persecuted church in Thessalonica is strong in the gospel. So, um, and this is not news, I mean, you've all heard this, but I think there's a special challenge for us in America where we aren't, at least our lives are not usually threatened for being Christians like they are in some other countries. This doesn't mean we can't be faithful, but we need to be careful we don't become the Corinthian church. Okay? And that the gospel is, is strong in our, in our midst in spite of the fact that we are of our relative ease. I had a couple other passages here. One of you is Kirby. <laughs> okay? I remember your name. What's your name? Carissa. Carissa? Okay. Uh, well, we'll have Brian read. He's got the Bible. Uh, Brian? You want to read a verse? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Matthew 5, 11 and 12. And then Lois, if you could be looking up 2 Timothy 2, 10, and Claire, Hebrews 12, 10 and 11. So, uh, oh, wait a second. What did I say to you? Matthew 5, 11 and 12. Okay, I got it wrong. Uh, don't, listen, don't listen to me, Lois. I got it wrong. Philippians 1, 6 and 7. I got onto the wrong verse there. No, I'm going to change that. 2 Timothy 2.12. And Marcus, could you do James 1, 2 through 4? Okay, so Matthew 5, 11 and 12. Got it? Yep. Okay. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil things against you falsely on my account. Be glad and supremely joyful, for your reward in heaven is great. For in this same way, people persecuted the prophets who were before you. Wow. So he says you're actually supposed to be glad and rejoice when that happens. You know what happened in Acts when the first persecution broke out? The apostles were rejoicing that they'd be considered worthy to suffer for the name of Christ in Acts. Interesting. If you're not being persecuted in some Way, shape, or form, that would that could show that you are not uh, doing what God wants you to do. Well, I think we got to be careful. We don't purposely try to be nasty so that we can feel good about our Christianity. Okay, um, I think that if we're faithful. And it's not because, because Peter warns us, what, what glory is it if you're buffeted because of your faults? If you do, I've seen people doing really dumb things and rude and annoying things that really aren't part of the gospel and then think that's causing their persecution. But it's not the gospel that's causing it, it's their wrongness. So we want to avoid that. But on the other hand, if we're forthright about being faithful to the gospel and to the truth, and we're actually getting outside of our four walls with it. One way that Christians avoid all persecution is they get cloistered. And they try to avoid any contact with anybody who's not a Christian or even anybody who's not in their church or their group. You become kind of an isolationist in a little camp. 
that avoids persecution too because you don't ever come in contact with anybody. I don't think that's right. I think the gospel is designed to go out and that we need to be in the world but not of the world. But if we're faithful in our witness, it's it's going to rub people the wrong way. And, And there will be some... What does it say? Woe to you and all men speak well of you. So that that's that's true. Okay, no, let's, let's, we got to keep moving here. I don't have to worry about that. No. I found that out when I Googled up my own name. There's a lot of websites that aren't speaking well of me. Philippians 1, 6 and 7. Okay. Uh, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun the good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart in as much as both in my bonds and in my defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. Okay, so there is the mutual comfort in the gospel. And the Philippians were... Faithful, and they loved Paul. Okay, and then Second Timothy. 2 Timothy 2.12. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. Okay. Disown, um, deny is how that's usually translated, right? If we deny him, he'll deny us. If we confess him, he'll confess us before the Father. Okay, James uh, 1, 2 through 4, Marcus. My brethren, starting with my brethren. Yes. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So the testing of your faith works patience. Okay. Hmm. Does anybody here know how to gain patience? Do you pray for it? No way. <laughs> you don't pray for patience. <laughs> pray that I will be patient when when, a, when it's appropriate. <laughs> okay, so that's James has a lot to say about that too. Now let's get, let's introduce the next verse, verse eight here. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. And notice verse 9, indeed we had the sentence of death within ourselves. Now there's a lot to talk about here, one of which is whether this was a literal sentence of death, which apparently it was not from what I can understand. Uh, And we're going to cross-reference this into Romans. But... The, the the question here, and I did a whole bunch of reading on this, and in fact one scholar had five different possibilities. The problem is trying to see where that fit in with what we know about Paul from Acts. You know, what what's he talking about here? If you look at the passage where he despaired even of life, we can read um, in Acts 19, starting with verse 23. Let's go ahead and do that. But it, the, that passage there may not be the one that he's talking about right here. But let's read it anyhow. Acts 19, starting with verse 23. 
I'll read that one. And this would have been something that happened in Ephesus. And about that time, there was no small disturbance concerning the way. That's the Christians, that means Christianity. For a certain man, uh, Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, that was a goddess that was worshipped there in Ephesus, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. And he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends on this business. And you see it here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Well, gee, <laughs> that's, a, that's a hard one to figure out. <laughs> I think they should know it. If they made the God, it hardly was their creator, but nevertheless, they're making money. All right? And not only this, verse 27, there is danger that this trade of ours will fall into disrepute. But also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship should even be dethroned from her magnificence. And when they heard this, they were filled with rage and they began crying out saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And the city was filled with confusion and they rushed with one accord into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And when Paul wanted to go into the assembly, the disciples would not let him. And some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, of his, sent to him and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. So then some were shouting one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion. And the majority did not know for what cause they'd come together. <laughs> Yeah, everybody likes a good, it's like those things you see from the Mideast. Somebody, somebody goes out in the streets, burns something, and they're all, pretty soon it's full of people shouting. They just, it's like they can't, okay, we gotta have an excuse to do this. This is the only fun we have. You know, shooting rifles in the air, screaming, mad about something. Uh, why, why are we here? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> somebody did something we didn't like. So this sort of thing was happening here in, in, in Asia Minor. They came out to get into the rockets, not even know why they were there. Verse 33, And some of the crowd concluded it was Alexander, since the Jews had put him forward, having motion with his hand. Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly. But when they recognized that he was Jew, a single outcry rose from them all as they shouted for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And after quieting the multitude, the town clerk said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there after all? who does not know that the city of Ephesians is a guardian of the temple of the great Artemis, uh, the image which fell down from heaven. That was their myth. And since these, these are undeniable facts, you ought to keep calm and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. So then if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against any man, the courts are in session, the proconsuls are available, uh, let them bring charges. But if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in a lawful assembly. So they dismissed it. So they came and brought some law and order. Now, there, that was the most um, contemporaneous event that would have um, happened about the time Paul wrote this epistle. So some have assumed that that must be the event. But the problem with it, it, it there's nothing in Acts 19 that says that Paul despaired of life when he was in Ephesus, and it doesn't seem to fit. 
Now, um, Paul shares no details here. And it could be that the Corinthians knew very well what he was talking about, but we don't. Remember, there was this other letter, this sorrowful letter that he talks about. We haven't got to that point yet, but he talks about a letter that they had gotten that we, that's not in our Bible. So it could very well be they knew exactly what he's talking about. But after studying this, I've concluded we don't know which event he means, and maybe one that's not even recorded in Acts. Okay? Is that satisfactory? It's the best answer I can come up with. But that's not important for interpreting this. All we know that Paul despaired of life. He was going through severe circumstances. And it's something uh, that they uh, uh, needed to understand. So he's experience of affliction and the despairing of life and the fact that God had brought comfort to Paul so that he might be a comfort to them is what we uh, can understand. Now, I wanted to turn quickly here to Romans chapter 8 and point out the comfort that we all should be able to have if we are understanding. Romans 8, and let me cite here where we want to. Let's start with verse 31. Let me just read this section of Romans 8 for your comfort. Okay? And this, in Romans 8, it's, in, it's generic. You know, in 2 Corinthians, he's talking about some unique thing that he went through. We don't know what it was. Romans 8 is for all of us in all circumstances. It's generally true for all Christians, what Paul says here in Romans 8. Starting with verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us, for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. There, stop right there. Just again, we go back to the basic truth that if your sins are forgiven, how bad can it be? I, I think that if that can sink in, it has a real life-changing benefit to us. Now, I know some people will scoff at that as a platitude. In other words, I don't want to have an answer so people can solve their problems, so I just tell them that. And they, they scoff at it as some unimportant or trivial or uh, evasion of, of trying to really solve problems. But I say no, on the authority of Scripture, that there's nothing more important than that your sins are forgiven. And even having great power, as in Luke where they came back and said, even the demons are subject to us. And Jesus said, don't rejoice in that, but rejoice that your names are recorded in the book of life. And I think that what has gotten the church in trouble in, in general is that the gospel and the holiness of God and, and, the, and, the, and the truth of justification weighs too lightly upon us. No Christian would deny these things that, that's at all orthodox. Anybody who's at all orthodox will say they believe that Jesus died for sins and the basic facts of the gospel. But what happens is that it gets pushed off of our agenda it gets pushed out of our pulpits and it becomes to weigh very lightly as if it were an asterisk after everything else we do. And so we uh, construct a church that's here to solve life's problems. 
which is the basic liberal agenda. And say we still believe in the atonement, say we still believe in the forgiveness of sins, but we spend all of our time, our money, our building projects, our our staff time, our attention, our writing, everything that we put our energy in trying to solve all these problems to make life better for people. And the forgiveness of sins is an asterisk. Well, look at how Paul sees it. Who brings a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. So what you need to know is, are your sins forgiven? Are you justified? Yes. Yeah. Um, I just kind of wanted to ask, you know, it seems like I've been to you know, all the wrong churches. And so I've learned a lot of wrong teaching, but I don't really know. You know, I'm learning here what the good teaching is or, or the truth is, you know. But um, what I'm wondering is, when our sins are forgiven, is it only up to our present? Like, say, I ask for forgiveness of sins today, then they're... They're covered, but not my future sins. I mean, are they all covered or, or what? Very good question. Um, uh, the, a good answer. This is what we should talk about, our mutual salvation. Very good question. In 1 John chapter 1, um, I believe that we have assurance that our future sins are forgiven, but we temper that with a warning to not commit apostasy. All right? So we have assurance of salvation and forgiveness, but warning to not neglect our great salvation, like it says in Hebrews. In John, in 1 John 1, it says, um, if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. As we pointed out, that's in the present continuous sense. So it, it isn't saying that you have to be conscious of every sin and particularly confess because we don't even know. I mean, our sin is 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 great, and we uh, we probably sin ways that we don't even know. So it's not a requirement that you're conscious of every sin and verbally describe every sin, and in order to be forgiven, it's not saying that. But if we believe that indeed we're sinners and we need forgiveness, all right, and that the forgiveness is found in the blood of Jesus, and we have fellowship with God and one another, then this forgiveness of sins goes on and on and on and on until one day when we're glorified we don't have any sin. Yeah, and it doesn't just stop. Uh, and it doesn't, in other words, the forgiveness of your sins doesn't stop because you weren't good, a good enough Christian yesterday. So then, then they pile back up. Because then you get back to Catholicism, right? You keep getting your sins back and then you gotta do something, you get them back and you gotta do something. So the blood is continually washing them away. Now, the tempered with, with a warning about apostasy, now if we, if we renounced Christ, rejected fellowship, rejected the blood atonement, and went off to serve the devil, we wouldn't have any assurance. But God will keep us from that, I believe. But uh, nevertheless, our sins, our future sins are forgiven. Amen? Yes. Uh, I've heard it said another way. Yours was very good. But another way was when Christ died on the cross, how many of our sins were yet in the future? All of them. All of them were. Yes, absolutely. Now, let me, let me read on here in First John. And then I've got to go back to Romans 8. And I've got two minutes. If we here's here's uh what's your name? John. John. Thank you. Very good question. Here's something though. It says if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. 
So what, it, what confessing means is that we're confessing we're sinners and that we need the blood of Jesus and we need the Lord. And that's our dependence. We, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? <coughs> Excuse me. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Then it says we confess our sins. He's faithful and righteous to forgive us sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So it has to do with confessing our need for the gospel and trusting the Lord. And he will continue. Our future sins are taken care of. And now back to Romans 8. With one minute to go. And this Romans 8 will, John, help you with this assurance that you were just asking about. Because that's exactly what this says. Um, it started with the golden chain that I didn't read, but all the justified ones are glorified. So if you're justified, you will be glorified. So that's, again, assurance about future sins. So I was in Romans 8 on verse 33. God is the one who justifies. So if you're a believer, you're justified. Verse 34, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes. Rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? For just as it is written, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. That's a cross-reference to that passage in Second Corinthians. Paul says we are under the peril of death. We're under the sentence of death. Okay, we're, we're dead to this world, facing actual death, but we have a relationship with God and we're going to go to heaven. Okay? But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor any other created thing. And I've had people argue, well, but, but it doesn't say us. We can separate ourselves. And then I say, well, are you created or not created? <laughs> yeah. So this is a comprehensive list. This isn't, it wasn't that there's some loophole we're supposed to look for so we can lose our assurance. Okay. Shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now there's the ground of our assurance is that our sins are forgiven. God has us. He will keep us. Now that's not meaning that we're free to go sin. Paul already said, may it never be. But because His Spirit indwells us, all true Christians have the Holy Spirit. His, he, he, he is continually carrying us and bringing us to glory. And if we do fall into sin, He'll convict us and, and bring discipline or whatever we need. And God will not let go of us and He will bring us to glory. And it's not based on our merit or our good works, but on His great power and grace and love. And so God will, even though we live in life with the sentence of death, we have the assurance of, of glorification. And we have a wonderful gospel. So uh, thank you for uh, sharing with me as we have delved into the scriptures that explain our mutual salvation. And at 10.30, I'm going to be preaching. Well, it will be after 10.30, but we go upstairs at 10.30. My sermon will be at 2 Thessalonians 2 about the truth versus the lie. So we'll see you upstairs.